You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. We have been uh, walking through a Lenten series. So Lent is the season leading up to Easter Sunday, seven weeks leading up to Caesar, uh, Caesar, uh, Easter uh, Sunday. And uh, we've been focusing on these little phrases from the cross, the last seven sayings from the cross. And, um, and we typically, as a church, for a lot, a lot of our, our teaching and preaching, we, we tend to walk through books of the Bible and like to dig in and kind of walk through. But we've been really focusing on these, these little phrases. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series, um, not just because I'm preaching the sermons, most of them, um, but it's because it, it kind of forces you to kind of slow down, right? To really focus on one phrase or one verse. And so we pointed this last week, but these are the each uh, saying from the cross. So, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And today you'll be with me in paradise. And then we'll get to the one we're going to do today. But there's something about during this season, it's a time of reflection. It's a time of contemplation, a time of considering our life before God and our sin. And uh, for historically, Lenten season can also be a time of fasting and praying and, and repentance and confession of just saying there's all these things in our lives that as we sang this morning that are that, that tend to become better than God. Right, they 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 get elevated to God. Um, They 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 we begin to believe this lie that if I just had this thing, whatever this thing is, that somehow that will satisfy me and in my soul. And and yet we have to constantly lay those things down to say there's a God who is 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 better. And so we've been looking at these these seven sayings, and we're going to look at another one uh, today. And we've been primarily so far looking in Luke's gospel, but this morning we're going to look in John's gospel. So if you turn with me to John chapter 19, we're going to read a couple of verses, John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. We're going to look at our third saying from the cross this morning. So John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the screen. Uh, there actually won't be a Bible on the screen. There'll be verses on the screen. Uh, if you need a Bible, there should be one around you. So John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own Home, And this is the word of God for us this morning. So another saying from uh, the cross. Now I need to tell you when I was uh, in my early 20s, when I was a young buck uh, youth pastor, uh, usually when you're young and in your 20s and you work at a church, it's the only thing they'll let you do is just like go hang out with the kids. Don't mess them up too much. Uh, We're not going to really let you do responsible, mature things. So why don't you take a bunch of kids down to Mexico on a mission trip when you can barely even are old enough to rent uh, a vehicle. Um, So very smart, very wise. Um, And so we live two hours in Southern California, away from Mexico. So we did a lot of trips down to Mexico, worked with orphans and did building projects and and served churches there and got to know a lot of different churches and people. And there's one particular time where I I went down to Mexico with a group of kids and they asked me to preach uh, in their Sunday service, which is typically not a big deal. But what you learn real quick, depending on the church, is that when you preach is they have an interpreter. 
And so imagine preaching a sermon and I say words and then they say words and then you come back to your words and then they say words, right? It's very choppy because they're having to interpret what you're saying, you know? And, and as you know, I'm a very funny person. I make you laugh often. So sometimes those jokes don't translate in Spanish. And so sometimes they'll look at me with weird eyes and like, I don't even know how to say that. You're weird. You know, can you please go back to um, your home? Uh, but as we were preach, as I was preaching, I had a solid, now this is early 20s, I don't have much to say, not much experience, so I have a, I have a solid 20 minutes. Like, this is, this is a riveting sermon. Now, with an interpreter, it goes a little bit longer, but so as I begin to finish up my sermon, the pastor looks at me, and I kind of see him in the back, and this is a very enthusiastic, charismatic uh, church, and it's Latin culture, so they're just, you know, have more energy than most of us. They go for like four hours. It's very normal. He kind of gives me the like, keep, keep on going. I mean, this is like a spirit filled like moment, right? Just like keep going. The, the Lord's on you. Just keep, keep doing your thing. And I'm just like, I don't do that. And I'm 20 and I, I don't have a lot to say. And that was like the best 20 minutes I have. Like, I don't, I can just start reading the Bible. I don't really know. So anyway, I keep, keep going and, and they're interpreting and I, I keep on going. And um, I can't really say, you know, what the results of that was, but it was a learning experience for me. And I remember um, after that celebrating communion with this church, and I remember they used tortillas and Kool-Aid, right? And I remember having all these opinions about, you can't have tortillas and Kool-Aid. Like, that's not biblical, right? I mean, Jesus wouldn't have done that. I mean, he didn't use Kool-Aid, right? Um, but I've noticed in my life and the experiences I've had, whether it was worshiping in Mexico, whether it was uh, worshiping in Europe, or, or, or whether it was serving in inner city churches when gunshots were being uh, were going off in the background, there's this thing that bound us together, no matter what culture or what they were like or what their worship was like or how they understood God, there was this thing that tethered us together. There's this thing that, that brought us together, no matter where you go in the world, no matter where you are, and you meet another follower of Jesus, you meet another Christian, you realize that we have this common thread. And the common thread is that we belong to Jesus, that we belong and understand the same gospel, the same good news, that there was a God who, who came, who made all things, who redeeming all things, who lived, who died, who rose again. Like that's what tethers us ultimately together. Now that may seem like a, a weird introduction to a saying from the cross, but it ties in really nicely to what we understand Jesus saying to his disciple John here and to his mother here. That he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, this is an interesting phrase that Jesus says to his mother, Mary, from the cross. This is his last moments of his life. He is up on the cross. He is suffering. He is dying. And he speaks these words of, of comfort to his mother, and I will say probably of all the sayings from the cross, this is probably the misunder most misunderstood and misapplied of all the sayings. Because I've heard it many times over, and this has actually been a very popular interpretation for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, some would even say going all the way back to St. Augustine, that this is a sermon about take care of your mothers. It's a great Mother's Day sermon. Like if it was Mother's Day, like just go to this text, right? Here's Jesus in his moment. Uh, he's dying. He wants to make sure that Mary is taken care of. He's going to be there no longer. So John, take care of my mother. That Jesus loved his mother, cared about her future, cared about this mission so much. John, go take care of my mother. That would preach a fantastic sermon. And we're all about caring for our mothers, Right? There, there's nothing here that would suggest that Jesus doesn't care about his mother, or doesn't have compassion for his mother. Of course he does. 
I don't think that's what this text is really about. There's something deeper, something more profound going on here. Because if you look at the context of John's gospel, you begin to understand that this isn't a Mother's Day sermon about caring for your mothers. There's something else going on here. So what does this saying have to do with mothers and the church and the gospel. Well, let's look at it here uh, this morning. And, and like I, I said, to, to, to mention this is that the context of John's theology is really important. So when you look at a book of the Bible, you look at a chapter, you look at a, a verse, you look at a section of, of scripture, as you always want to understand, every writer of every book has a theological agenda. They're trying to say something. They have a point, they have a, a purpose, they have a, a theme. Now, sometimes it's, it's clearer than other books, amen, right? I mean, Leviticus, what's going on, right? Um, and, and some books make it really clear that it seems like this is the theme or this is what the, the writer wants to say. And John has a very particular agenda that he's trying to communicate as you work through his gospel and as he was a eyewitness to Jesus in his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection. He was actually one of the closest disciples of Jesus, the disciple that he loved. He was in the inner circle, not just the 12, but he was one of the three with, with John and, and James and Peter. They, they spent more time with Jesus than any other disciple. And so he's trying to get after something in the book that he has written. Now, what's interesting about John's gospel is that he doesn't mention Mary's name very often or that, he, that she is his mother very often. Actually, the mother of Jesus is only mentioned twice in his gospel, and it's only mentioned in passing one other time in John chapter 2, verse 12. John chapter 2, verse 12, there, Jesus is doing ministry, and he says, after after this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Just a, a passing comment. John doesn't seem to highlight the, 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 the relationship of mother and son very often here in his gospel. So what, what does that suggest to us? Is Jesus just anti-family, doesn't love his mother, right? It's just really down on the, the family. Like, what is really going on here? Notice how he addresses her from the cross, in our text this morning, woman, behold your son. He doesn't say Mary, he doesn't say mom, right? He says woman, right? Now, if we read that in English, we just go, huh. she said, if I called my wife woman, she'd slap me across the face, right? Like woman, where's my slippers, right? Like that's just not gonna go well in our home, right? It just seems like a derogatory term, but in the Greek, it actually, it's not what he's, he's not speaking to her in derogatory terms because actually Jesus has done this before. He's addressed Mary like this before, do you guys remember the famous wedding of Cana, Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2? Well, John and, and, or excuse me, Jesus and Mary are interacting there. The, the wine has, has gone dry, right? And Jesus wants to keep the party going because this is a picture of the kingdom of God where the, the wine just keeps on going and keeps on flowing, right? And she's like, what, what do we do, right? Well, in John chapter 2, Jesus says this, chapter 4, or John chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, I lost my place. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This moment of what do we do about this, this miracle that needs to play? There's this moment in Jesus's ministry where he doesn't call her mommy there. He doesn't say, mom, you don't think I know what I'm doing, right? 
Sounded like a teenager. Like, you don't think I, I got things under control? Like, he doesn't say that at all. He says, woman. Right? He, he's addressing her as, as woman. And then she kind of submits to even what he says and, and tells the servant, hey, just do what he, he says. There's a different interaction here. There's a different relationship that is going on in that moment. It's not just mother, son. It's master, teacher, master, disciple that, that John wants to highlight here. He does it again and, and again. He talks about when the woman uh, at the well in John chapter 4, he addresses her as, as woman. Again, he talks about this hour that is coming, as he said in, in John chapter 2. There's this hour where even worship will shift. So in John chapter 4, he encounters this woman at the well. He begins to talk about worship. And in 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Saying there's this hour that is coming. He's going to keep using this phrase, the hour, where worship itself is going to shift. She has a lot of questions. She's a Samaritan. They have this kind of weird Old Testament, kind of strange vision of, of what God was and how to worship God. They were kind of mixed Samaritans and Jewish people. So they kind of had a little bit of Old Testament, but they had their own kind of version of it. And he's saying, hey, you're not going to go up into this one mountain or this one place or this one temple that when the spirit comes and after I die and I'm resurrected from the dead, worship can happen anywhere, wherever where two or three are gathered, worship can, can happen. Worship's actually going to change. Anyone that calls on my name is a true worshiper. It's not about what temple you worship in or where you worship. But that hour hasn't come yet. So he uses this, this word woman again to, to talk about this hour. So you could go to John chapter 8 as well. The woman caught in adultery, he addresses her in that way. In John chapter 8, verse 10 as well. John chapter 8, verse 10. Woman, where are you? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I think what John is trying to do here is that to, to remind us that Good Friday is not the first Mother's Day. <laughs> that there's more going on in the cross by Jesus saying these words to his disciple and to his mother. And as you follow the flow of John's theology through his gospel, you realize that there's more going on here. Now, I've said it a couple of times, but there's a second clue, and that has to do with the hour. He keeps saying this hour, right? If you read John's gospel, the, my hour has not come, the hour, right? The, the hour is what? The hour is what everything's been leading up to, why Jesus was sent to the earth, the hour in which he will die on the cross and resurrect from the dead. All of his life, all of his ministry, all of his teaching was leading up to that hour. And from our text, if you go back to John 19, Notice it says, we, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You could translate it from that hour, took her to his own. That word home is, is kind of controversial. And I don't want to get into geeky Greek stuff and scholarship and stuff. But, but home might not be the accurate ac accurate translation there. A lot of translations don't have the home piece, that it seems like at that moment, Jesus was taking, or, or John was taking his mother Mary to his home in that moment. But historically and traditionally, after they study this, they realize that's probably not what happened here. 
It has this idea of in this hour, in what Jesus is accomplishing, in that moment, there's a coming together. There's a different shift in the relationship that's happening with Mary and Jesus and John. Something else is going on here. This isn't just a Mother's Day sermon. The hour is significant for John. Going back to John chapter 4, the hour in which worship will shift It's no longer on this mountain or this place or this temple, wherever the spirit is, wherever two or three are gathered. Those who call on the name of Jesus will will worship God in spirit and truth. And then in John chapter 7, if you go to John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do many more signs than this man has done. That you notice that Jesus in his life and his ministry, he is in full control of the whole story, the whole narrative. That everyone's trying to, to catch him and throw him in jail and beat him and say he's not the Messiah and all this. But, but even Acts will tell us that, that God ordained the whole thing, that even his own death, that he decides when he dies. He decides how I lay my life down and how I raise it. Uh, but my hour had not come yet at that point in his ministry. The time had not yet come. It was not time for him to go to the cross, fulfill his mission and fulfill his vocation. There was more going on, more that needed to happen. And then we get to the high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm just trying to give you some context here just so you know I'm not crazy. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer towards the end of his life, here's what he says in verse 1. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The hour has come and the hour is the road and the path to the cross. That that's where we'll begin to understand Jesus' full extent of his mission. It wasn't just to teach people about love or give them some wisdom of how to get around in life, but his life was to to live and to die and be resurrected for the dead, for the sins of the world, to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another and to heal and restore the entire cosmos. That hour had not yet come, but when he prays his prayer, he says, it's coming and this is what I have to do because there's more going on here. Now, I got to give you one more and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. But in John chapter 12, there's another detail. Again, I'm trying to give you the context of John's theology and, and how this all works together. But John chapter 12, starting verse 20, notice what it says. Now, among those who were up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so non-Jewish people. So these came into Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them. So the disciples go and get Jesus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if he dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What Jesus is hinting at is that the mission, this hour that he keeps talking about, the cross, was not just a Jewish mission. It was for 
every tribe and tongue, every background. Here's these Gentile people. Here's these Roman people coming to Jesus. And he's saying, this mission of my dying is for all disciples to be made. We just talked about DNA groups, right? That, that, that every tribe and tongue, that we go and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, right? That all are welcome, but this hour has to come. Why? So that all people can be reconciled to God and all people can be reconciled to one another. And that the cosmos could be ultimately healed through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when we get to the cross and Jesus turns to Mary and John, and there's trash on the, the ground around the cross because garments are being divided and there's human waste and there's blood and there's guts. And he turns to John and he turns to Mary. This is not a Mother's Day sermon saying, hey, when I'm gone, can you make sure my affairs are in order? When he turns to John and Mary and he says these words, he's essentially saying, you are my disciples. You are my family. This is the beginning of the church when he says these words. This is what been, he's been leading up to the entire time. That when he called his first disciples and brought them to himself, he had, he had the cross and the resurrection and his mission beyond that in sight to say, I'm going to disciple these men, these, this band of 12 and this inner circle of three so that, that when I die and I'm resurrected from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes out, the mission would continue on to go and make disciples of all nations. What he's saying is, you are my family. Now continue to go and make disciples of my, in my name. That's what Jesus is concerned about here on the cross. As much as we want to say care for our mothers, yes and amen. <laughs> as much as this could be a great Mother's Day sermon, Jesus is concerned more with the mission of the church and how we are to live as the church than have compassion on our mothers, which we should. So the church, this is where disciples learn to be a family. And I know the church has some bad PR these days, right? It's this flawed institution. It's broken. It's hypocritical, right? Um, you know, there's abuse. There's, there's scandal. And, and I just want to say, welcome. Those are exactly the people that Jesus came to redeem and, and save. And you're making a mess of it just like I am right? It's not as it should be. It's not what it could be, right? It's, it's flawed. It's, it's not the perfect spotless bride yet, but we're moving that way. And it's not to say we don't acknowledge all the pain and all the suffering. We have thousands of years of history to say, yep, welcome to the, the party. That's why we need God's grace. That's why we need redemption. That's why we need reconciliation. The problem in the church is you and me, Right? It is. Like, I know that's not a big sell. It's like, yeah, well, not really me. I mean, it's those people, right? Whoever those people are. But, but in John's gospel and in the New Testament, he's, he's teaching us about the familial nature of the church, how we are to live as disciples of Jesus in the church. That he spends a lot of time in his gospel with, with individuals, right? He highlights different people, right? You remember the, 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 the Samaritan woman at the well? You know, it's a great just evangelistic text about how Jesus comes to the outsider and this woman who's probably living in sin and he, he shows her grace and mercy. Yes and amen. You remember Nicodemus? Remember Nick at night, right? The guy who comes at night and is kind of not sure if I should talk to this Jesus, right? John highlights that. All these great stories of these encounters with Jesus, of course. But John continually focuses on not just individuals, but on the communal nature of what it means to follow Jesus. And one of those, I think, communal texts that, that he highlights towards the end of his Gospels in, in John 15, 
where it reaches this climax in John 15. You remember this famous text, John 15, verse five? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's partly why I shared that story at the beginning of my sermon about going to Mexico and going to Europe and going to the inner city and encountering different believers from all walks of life. What is our common tethering? What is our connection? Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, and we're connected to him. So it doesn't matter if it's 1492 or 1982 or 480 or Africa or inner city or suburbs. What connects the church is the vine and his branches. And we read this often as very individualistic text, right? It's just me and Jesus, right? He's the vine. I'm the branches. I need to stay connected to him. I need to abide in him. Yes, right? How many sermons have you heard on that, right? It's all about discipleship. It's about me and Jesus, making sure that I'm connected to the power source. Any, anybody? I've probably preached those sermons. But it's easy to forget as we step back, we go, he's talking about the big C church just as much. Every believer, every disciple that calls on the vine, that is rooted in the vine, that is connected to the vine by faith, that we're part of a bigger movement every time and place and background, right? It's so easy to think the church only exists in America, right? Or Kansas City or our little church or whatever it is. But we're rooted in time and place in every country and every tribe and every uh, place that call on the name of Jesus. John is concerned about when Jesus says these words to Mary and John, these are my disciples. You are my family. Now go be the church grafted in me, connected to me, to the ultimate source. And so you can't love Jesus and not love the church. You just can't. It's not possible. I said this for 12, 13 years that, that believers in Jesus, if you're not connected to a church and you don't love the church, you have no category in scripture. Right? There's, you can't talk about redemption in Jesus and not talk about redemption into a body, into a community, into a, a, even if it's two or three, meeting under a tree, right? Or meeting in a basement or meeting in a home or meeting in a 1950s Baptist style, whatever this thing is. That's not the point. That redemption is bringing us not only to Christ, but it's also bringing us into a new family. And so we can't love Jesus and not love his bride, his church that he laid his life down for. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus addresses his disciples, when he's getting them ready for the mission, he doesn't address them as individuals with unique gifts and callings. Like, hey, John, you are a lover, man. I just love that you love. You're a lovey, love, love guy, right? And I want you to go out in the world and just be uniquely you, right? Just love on everybody, right? He doesn't do that. He addresses them as a family, as a community, this greater mission that John's important in that. Yeah, and James is important in that. And Peter, I mean, Peter, what a joke, right? He's going to be the rock that God's going to build the church on, the guy who abandoned him and betrayed him in his moment of need. But he's not addressing them as these individuals, these individual spiritually minded people. He's not saying that to them at all. He doesn't want us to be independent and self-centered. What he wants us to do and what he's creating is a new community that makes us mutually interdependent and other-focused. That you need me and I need you more than you realize. Like this myth that every man or woman is an island is a joke. 
right? Because the minute you say like, I did this, right? I, I'm successful and I, I made this happen. You start naming off the 20 people that helped you make this happen, right? Like you can't do it. It's just not possible, right? Fathers and mothers and friends and mentors and, 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 and teachers and coaches throughout your life that helped you, that encouraged you, that, that walked alongside you, right? No man is an island, right? It's like we need each other. We're, we're, we're interdependent more than we realize, that sometimes even your faith needs to be my faith. I need as much as your robust faith to hang on to me, to help me be all that Jesus wants me to be. That's why we don't walk alone. That's why Jesus redeemed us so that we could walk in community and walk with other believers in Christ. It's also why in John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, go and do likewise. What was that about? I don't think it's, you have to go wash each other's feet, right? I know some churches take that literally and just, they get up on stage and, you know, they wash each other's stinky feet. That's fine. You can do that. I've done it. But it's what Jesus is saying. I've come among you as a servant. He puts on this towel and he begins to wash. And again, in ancient culture, like this is just scandalous, right? These are bloody, dirty. This is what slaves do when they come into a house. Not the king of kings and creator and redeemer of the universe, right? And he lays his life down. He humbles himself as a servant and says, I want you to do likewise because this is what the church is. It's, it's you thinking about each other, not just yourself, right? You can't wash someone's feet unless you're thinking about them, right? It requires you to, to get outside of yourself, right? And the 50 and 60 one another's in the New Testament, guess what? You can't do the one another's unless someone else is involved, right? <laughs> like you can't just do it to yourself, Love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. It involves another relationship. Do you realize that even love itself requires another person to even understand how it works, right? You can't love something or, or even understand how it works without another person involved, right? Like we have no context for, for even what love is or, or how it expresses itself. And what's, what's so beautiful is that that's how God has wired things because the triune God is a loving God. John 17, and we're going to stay in John's gospel because he really helps us understand this. In the, the priestly prayer in John 17, verse 11, notice what Jesus prays. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Praise this prayer for every disciple. I want them to be united and be one as we are one. The Father and the Son are one. Well, how, does he, how do we understand that? Well, if you jump down to verse 23, he says, I and them and you and me, and as they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The entire universe is built on the Trinitarian love of God. The same love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit experienced before the foundation of the world, before anything was made. There was this loving, mutual submission in the, in the Godhead, Father and Son loving each other. And he says, he says, I've sent you, Jesus, into the world to redeem and restore all things. Why? So that your disciples could experience that same love, that same love that's been going on since the foundation of the world. So that if you're a believer in Jesus in this room, guess what? You get to experience the eternal love of God, like right now. The same love that's been going on for all of the cosmos and all of eternity is yours in Christ. 
To understand love requires another being to give it away, right? Like love isn't love until it's actually given away to someone else. So we can't talk about I love Jesus and I hate the church or I love Jesus and I don't love the church. This is where you become a disciple. This is where you actually learn how to love people. And the church is one of the best places to do that because we have nothing in common other than Jesus, right? You didn't choose your family. Like that's what I love about the church. Like you're all a bunch of weirdos and I love it, right? You all have stories. You all have, you're all different ages. You all have families. You have different music that you like. I mean, we had a conversation early on about Tool. I mean, who listens to Tool? right? I mean, hello, 90s called, wants their CDs back, right? I mean, you know, there, there's just, right, there, it doesn't matter though, right? It doesn't matter if you like the Chiefs or the Seahawks. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or no money. It doesn't matter what your taste in clothes is or your taste, you know, what your feelings are about Republican or Democrat. Who gives a crap? What binds us together, what keeps us going, why you can go to Mexico or Africa or Europe and have something in common is Jesus. That's what unites us. But that's also where we learn how to forgive and we learn how to love and we learn how to serve, right? It's, learn how, it's where we learn how to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't practice this and express this in isolation. It just doesn't work. And it's God's gift to us. It's God's grace to us. Dorothy Day, this Catholic activist says, you can't practice love without community. You need another person to practice it with, Right? Cyprian of Carthage, I know you, you love him. Um, you cannot have God as your father without church as your mother. It's not possible to talk about redemption and following Jesus and the gospel apart from talking about his church. They go hand in hand. God has redeemed you into a family. And it's, it's why we're, we're so big about our gospel identities as family. So that our, uh, one of our gospel identities is when you come to Christ, you are not only redeemed to Christ, but you are redeemed into a new family. And so we're constantly asking the questions, what would that look like if I understood you guys as my brothers and sisters? Jesus or God is my father and Jesus as my brother. If I understood it in this familiar terms, familial terms, how would I treat you differently? What if I cared about your spiritual needs as much as my own? What if I cared about your physical needs as much as my own? That we walked in that way. We cared for each other in that way. That's what it means to learn how to be a family of disciples together. And it's hard and it's messy. And every year, you know, we see more and more studies of of how isolated we're becoming. And I think the church has, has this gift and this opportunity to actually point people to a deeper connection that we're not made to be alone and isolated, but we're made for each other, that God is redeeming us, but he's also reconciling us together. I remember reading in the 90s, um, and I, I didn't read in the 90s, but a little bit after, but in the, in the 90s, this book called Bowling Alone. There's this big study showing how people weren't, weren't joining bowling leagues anymore because they're just isolated. They don't need community anymore. They weren't joining volunteer organizations as much as they were because we're all just kind of isolated, just kind of doing our own thing. There wasn't this sense of, I should care about my neighbor and I should care about the flourishing of our, our cities, right? It just becomes about me, myself, and I, right? We become more and more isolated and yet God says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. They've done studies on marriage. You know, one of the, the, the metrics of a healthy long-term marriage isn't having a date night, as important as that is. It's actually one of the metrics of having a great marriage, a long-term sustainable marriage is actually having deep friendships. 
that you can share together as a couple. And that's actually what will sustain a marriage more than anything. Not walking alone, not walking in isolation, being known and knowing other people. That's how God has wired us. It's how he's wired the church. And I, I think it's so easy for people just to abandon the church, to lob grenades at the church and just say, you know, look at all those hypocrites and look at all the abuse and look at all the things. But that's so easy to stand back and be, you know, tough on social media and on YouTube and, and, and write little pithy posts about how terrible the church is, but you're not in the mess. Like we need you to be in the mess. We need your gifts. We need all your stuff, Right. It's like, well, I'm just, it's just, it's too far gone. It's like, that's not how Jesus, Jesus died for this thing. Jesus died for you. He laid his life down. He shed his blood to bring us into this community. It wasn't designed and wired to walk in isolation. Yeah, it's a mess, but have you read church history? Like we act as if like in the last two years, like all of a sudden the church doesn't know what they're doing. Just pick up a church history book. We've had way darker times. Trust me. Right? I've gone to seminary and gone to a lot of debt to read big books that I haven't read since. There's a lot of dark spots in church history. There's also a lot of dark spots outside the church that no one wants to talk about. We think all the wars and all the you know, people that have murdered each other in the name of whatever. Again, it's not all religious. Like We act like, like it's just the church, right? They're just all a bunch of hypocrites, right? But it's where we learn how to love. It's where we learn how to forgive. It's easy to say I'm mature and I'm spiritual, but you never even have the opportunity to actually learn how to forgive and learn how to love and learn how to serve. It's easier to stand back and lob grenades on everybody. And one of the things, and I hope you're not hearing a harsh tone. I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, whatever. But I've been thankful for this church that I don't sense that spirit here. That's what I've always loved about New City Church is it seems like the people that have, have come and have come to Christ here, that, that it's just this posture of like, hey, how can we serve? How can we, we help? I, I love that about that. And I pray that it'll continue to be just, it's not just about us individually, but it's about us together. How can we continually think about our brothers and sisters and their needs as well, just as much as our own? And the, the culture is going to continually beat you down and double down on self-care and navel-gazing, Right? And I'm all for rest and I'm all for self-care and I'm all for we need those things. But one of the best ways you can care for yourself is actually think about somebody else. They've done study after study, even if you're depressed, clinically depressed, they want to help you actually find ways that you can get outside of yourself and actually help somebody else. Because you can live in this cycle of just constantly inward, constantly like, I don't feel right, I don't, right? And I'm not saying that we don't need help or we don't need medication or we don't need counseling. Of course not. But there's something beautiful that God has wired us that, 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 our joy, that our souls are more filled with joy when we think about other people than just thinking about ourselves. I get exhausted thinking about myself. This guy's a mess. I don't need more attention to this guy, Right? But it's something about laying myself down, something about saying, how can I serve my wife or my kids or my neighbor and, and give and be generous, right? And not just always be thinking about myself constantly. But I think that's how God has wired it. That's how he's wired the church. That he, Jesus lays his life down for this broken, sinful, incomplete community that breaks our heart constantly. Believe me, I'm a pastor. I get my heart broken all the time. I'm not going to change the way I do ministry and be close to people and be in relation with people and open up our lives. Like there's times where Christian and I are just like, forget this. And everyone just seems to betray us and walk out and all that. But no, no, that's not what Jesus has called us to. 
is to take those hits, to take those sacrifices, to learn how to forgive, to learn how to show grace, because I need that too, because I don't always respond well when people bail, right? I'm just like you, right? Well, well, geez, they obviously don't love Jesus, because I'm perfect, right? Why would they walk out, right? But it's me also and my family also learning how to walk in these ways, learning how to show grace in tangible ways, learning how to forgive, learning how to reconcile. Because that's not my default mode. Maybe it's yours. Maybe you're just like, yeah, I got it. Nailed it. But for me, it's not. And I was reminded this week of Ephesians chapter 5. I know it's a, a wedding text, but, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives some interesting teaching on understanding the church and what Jesus is accomplishing through his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 28, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That's interesting. That God nourishes his church, his body, his followers as a community, right? Like we don't hate our own flesh, right? What if we like hated our own, you know, skin, right? He says, don't, you don't do that. Why would you hate the church? Why would you hate God's own skin, right? His body. And he says, um, because we are, uh, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We are part of Christ, which means we're part of his body. There's feet and there's hands and there's eyes and we're all grafted together. We all need each other. What if I loved you guys and you loved me in the same way that I love my own skin, my own body, right? What if we loved our neighbors as ourselves? We give a lot of energy to ourselves, right? What if we shifted that same amount of energy toward each other? That's how much Jesus cares about his church. So when Jesus speaks these words to Mary and John, he's dying and he says to them, in a sense, I'm dying to give you, Mary, to John and John to you and me to both of you. You're my family. You're my true family. You're the family that I died for so that you can carry on my mission out into the world. And is Jesus anti-family? I don't think he's anti-family. I think he's very much pro-family. But in Mark's gospel in chapter 4, verse 31, he says this. This is his true in uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verse 31. He says, this is his true family. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The true family of God are those that do the will of God, those that are trusting in Christ, those that have been grafted in. That for a lot of us, we have more in common as brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with our, even our own families for a variety of reasons that I won't get into. Like when you become a Christian, you, always, you get a new family. You get a new father and you get a new brother in Jesus and you get a new family, whether you like it or not. And they, you didn't choose each other, but God chose us and brought us together. And that's what's the adventure. And that's what's the beauty. And that's where the grace. And that's where we learn how to love and where we learn how to serve. And we learn how to forgive. And we learn how to get along with those that don't agree with us on certain things or have different opinions about whether Tool was a really good band or not. 
But we all know the 90s band is Oasis, so it's not even debatable. I don't mean to divide the congregation, but I will. It's learning how to consider others better than ourselves. It's the church where we learn how to be disciples. It's where we learn how to be a family of disciples. Now, I'm going to close with this. The Bible's not always clear. Any amens to that? I got one amen. Okay, so the rest of you are like, no, actually, it's very clear. You're just not reading it well. Okay, for the rest of us, sometimes I wonder, as I open the sermon with, sometimes the books aren't clear. The, 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 the theme isn't clear. What is the writer trying to say? What does he want me to know? What is he trying to point to when he says these sayings from the cross? Well, John's gospel is very clear. And in John chapter 20, he says this, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That these words are written down so that you would have life in Jesus' name. That Jesus speaking these words to Mary and John from the cross, you would realize that not only am I a redeemed into the family of God, but I have a mission that I'm a part of that's bigger than me. That you would have life in his name and that we would go and give life in his name. That's why these are written down. It's not just information. It's not just to make us smarter or to wow our friends, right? Or to get the answers right on the Bible quizzes. So that we would have life in Jesus' name. And that we would give life to Jesus' name. And I think the way we give life is through the local churches. That's why we're so committed to disciple making and so committed to church planting. Is that where this life comes? Because this is God's plan A. There is no other plan. And we get to play a small part in that.